time now is 549. And for our viewers this evening, we want to thank you so much for, for your time. Blue Station Management, we have what we call our weekly Facebook Live session. And we are a company specific to agriculture and video gaming, but going out to the poll, especially on Tuesday for the runoff election is very important. So we wanted to make sure that we have our elected uh, officials uh, and those who are running for office to come on and talk to us this evening about uh, the plans that they have for the positions that they hold that being uh, Paul Howard, who is the district attorney of Fulton County. And we also have Judge Tamika Habrosky Houston, who's with us this evening. So thank you both for joining us this evening. Glad to be here. Yes. And I am here in the kitchen of Mandita Thompson's uh, residence. In the first half, we had an opportunity to talk to Mandy Thomas, who is running for state district five. So let's jump right into the conversation. And while we get uh, Tamika up and, and going here on the screen, let's have a conversation with you, Mr. Howard. So there's a lot. The connection is not uh, where we want it to be. And Murphy's Law is such that uh, today of all days, we are experiencing extreme difficulties. So my apologies for that. I'd like to go ahead and jump right into the conversation. Let's start off, uh, Mr. Howard, with the police. So you have a a deep relationship with the police officers, uh, that being the city of Atlanta police officers. And we're talking about connecting the dots of government. So share with us the city of Atlanta's police. Well, uh, I want people to understand that the you really have to look at the police in sort of two different dimensions. Uh, I have worked with the police since I started as a prosecutor for the city in 1976. In fact, I probably know uh, as many policemen as anyone in the county. Uh, and most of the policemen are hardworking, honest, law-abiding citizens. And uh, those are the police that are, are helpful uh, you know, who work in our communities, uh, who hardly take vacations, and really dedicated to their jobs. Uh, but we've also got something else going on in the police department, and that is the police unions. And uh, our community has not, in my opinion, and that includes me, really been exposed to big time urban police union politics but we now see it here in our community. And, and so people ask me, you know, Mr. Howard, what does that mean? And why should we be careful about it? Well, with respect to prosecutors, and I ask people not to take my word for it, 
but to look yourself. Uh, because if you look at several urban cities in our country, Miami, Florida, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, Los Angeles, California, Sacramento, just to name a few cities, what you see is when the union endorses and funds a DA's candidate, none of the police officers ever get prosecuted for killing African-Americans, Black people, or minorities. Probably the starkest example is what is going on in Los Angeles. Since the year 2000, in Los Angeles, they've had 1,800 shootings and not one police officer has been prosecuted. So what uh, I am saying to the citizens of our county is that you cannot have a district attorney who has accepted money from the union uh, and maintain that district attorney's independence because the only reason that the union endorses a DA is because that DA has committed to them that they will not prosecute police cases. And I, I don't think that... Um, the people in Atlanta want to go back to the days uh, when I started as the DA. Uh, it was not uncommon for 15 or 20 black men to be killed by Atlanta police officers. Now the, the average is about three. That's still far too many, but we've made a lot of improvement. I know that I don't want to go back to those days and I don't think the citizens want to go back. And so that's one of the reasons that this is so important, this election is so important because it will determine how policing goes in the future of our county. People realize policing has got to get better. It, there has to be significant police reform. It starts by understanding a couple of truths. And one of the factors is that there's systematic racism in our country and in police departments. And that's why they continue to kill black and minority people. And unless we attack that problem directly and honestly, I believe it's gonna to continue to occur. So share with us what your office is doing in light of uh, Rashad Brooks and what you have done in the past uh, to ensure that there's not an uptick in Atlanta? Well, you know, unfortunately, when I took over in 1996, as I mentioned before, you know, we had 15 or 20 uh, Black men that would get killed by the police. None of the police officers ever got prosecuted. So um, shortly after I took office, I was summoned to a meeting of South Fulton police chiefs. And people find this unusual. It was the police chiefs that asked me to attend a meeting. Uh, and they asked, could you start a squad to investigate police officers? Well, of course, I said to them, aren't your investigations being handled by the GBI? And what they said to me was, Mr. Howard, that's a pro problem because generally the GBI will interview officers and once the interviews are completed, they will turn over a report to us. And then the officer, they're demanding that he or she go back to work. 
And the police chiefs felt they needed something, uh, a, a more thorough investigation. They asked my office to start to do that. So in 2002, we prosecuted our first case involving a uh, police officer who shot a young man, 19 years old. His name was Corey Ward. He was shot by a policeman who thought that he was stealing a car or an SUV that he was driving. As it turns out, the SUV belonged to his mother. Case was indicted, uh, presented to one of the Superior Court judges, and the judge granted that officer immunity. And I'm sure, uh, you know, Kimberly, that that's something that you've talked about, something that we're going to have to do in this country. We've got to eliminate qualified and sovereign immunity for police officers when they kill citizens. Uh, so since that time, we've handled cases like the Katherine Johnston case. And in fact, we've prosecuted about 40 cases, and one of those being the case involving Rashad Brooks. So we have put together a squad of lawyers, of investigators and administrators, and that's all that they do is to investigate these cases. But in order for us to do a good job, there's something that has to happen. And that is, we're gonna have to make some changes, particularly in local ordinances, so that we can receive information from police departments uh, much quicker uh, and we can get it without going through the process of sending subpoenas and, and open records requests uh, and so that we can move those cases with dispatch. The other major thing that we're gonna have to do in our community is to require policemen not only to wear body cams, but they've got to turn them on. Um, I can tell you there's nothing uh, that causes more stress than having to meet with the family. And when you explain to the family why we don't have body cam, because the officer said that he turned the camera on or he only turned it, he turned it off or he only turned it on after the incident. And when I tell people that, people are looking at me like, Mr. Howard, you must be a crook because they just don't believe it happened. But we all saw in the Rashad Brooks case that both of those officers indicated that their body cams fell off. But what is interesting about it, and a number of citizens, they pointed this out to me, the body cams didn't fall off while they were tussling with Mr. Brooks, they fell off when the shooting started. And Kimberly, what that means is a lot of our citizens, they just don't believe it. So we've got to make some local changes and those local changes will speed up the process. But most of all, what they will do is to give citizens the impression that we are presenting facts that are truthful and that things are not being concealed from citizens and the, the body cams and the dash cams that are supposed to be in cars, they constitute a real important part of that equation. Understand. I want to go back to what you were talking about earlier when you mentioned police unions and accepting money from police unions. Please talk talk in depth about that and your your role in that, if you have had a role in that, if at all. Well, uh, of course, when the police found out or the police union found out that I was investigating them, 
and prosecuting them. They did not seek to provide endorsements or ever provide money to me. Uh, but um, if you look around the country, what you'll see is the police unions will donate to a candidate. They use a lot of surreptitious ways to do that. They won't just do, uh, make a, a donation directly, but sometimes they use surrogates, they use former uh, officers, they use other organizations. And again, I ask people not to take my word for it, but there is a story that's written by the Mother Jones organization about the Los Angeles DA's office. And in the current race for a district attorney in Los Angeles, the one police union there has donated $2.2 million. That, that's hard to believe that somebody would donate that much money, one entity, to a, uh, a DA's race. But the Mother Jones organization, as I understand it, had to complete a lot of investigation to find out where this money had gone. So what has happened in the past, when they donate the money, it comes with a condition. And that condition is you cannot prosecute policemen. Now, and I think probably the craziest example of how extreme this has gotten is if you look at what is going on in Miami, Florida, three candidates running for DA, there's the current DA who has not prosecuted a police officer for, a, for killing a citizen. And, and it got to the point that three years ago, the Democratic Party in Miami asked the DA to do a better job of prosecuting police officers. Three years passed, she had not uh, appointed or not prosecuted a case involving a police officer. So the Democratic Party asked the current DA not to run. Well, the police union had been supporting that DA the DA hadn't prosecuted any policeman in a homicide case, but the police discovered that she was prosecuting policemen for a theft in a drug case. So they then announced that they would no longer support the current DA. They were supporting one of the other candidates because that candidate apparently said they wouldn't prosecute any policeman for any reason. That's how extreme it's gotten. Um, one of the things that uh, was sort of disturbing and I'm sure you're familiar with the chokehold uh, that's been in a lot of controversy. And the choke, the city uh, council in New York City passed a law that, uh, pro pro that prohibits their officers from using a chokehold. Well, a week ago, the commissioner of uh, the New York police made a statement at a stat meeting that was open to the public and he said at the meeting, uh, if one of his officers used that chokehold and accidentally led to the death of a person, that they shouldn't worry about that. And he said, right in public, the reason that you don't have to worry about it is because I've talked to the DAs, all five of the borough DAs, and they have said to me, they are not going to prosecute you for using that chokehold. That, that's how influential the union has gotten all over this country. And I'd like to just cite one more thing, and I, because I don't want to talk too long, is one of the things that just happened in our state on yesterday, and that was the passage of Bill, of Senate Bill 838. 
That was a bill that's proposed by the police union. Uh, it's called a policeman bill of rights bill. That's not what they call it in Georgia, but it's the same thing. It's now been passed in, I believe, 17 states. And uh, it was a bill that was passed by Republican legislators giving policemen more protection. But it is a bill that has been packaged and presented to them by police unions. And as I said, I believe in our county, we are just beginning to open our eyes to see the great power of police unions. Now, I, I, I'm harping on this because I want to find out, is it suggested that uh, your opponent has received funds from the police union? Is that... Yeah, she's been very open about receiving funds from the police union. Uh, one of the things that uh, she has been asked to do, I've asked her to do it, other citizens have asked her, uh, is uh, she received a contribution from the lawyer who represents the policeman charged in the death of Rayshard Brooks. And he made the contribution after he began the representation. To, to me, it's an obvious appearance of a conflict, and, uh, and I think the money should have been returned. Uh, but uh, so we know about those two donations, but in her disclosure forms, she also has about $31,000 where she has not identified the contributor of that money. And uh, she says that those folks who gave her the money gave her less than $100. Well, let me tell you, in the financial disclosures from my campaign, there are no contributions that are not identified. Uh, even if we've got somebody who gave us $2, we list the person who did it. I think if you're running for DA, you can't hide $31,000 of contribution because uh, looking at what happened with the Mother Jones investigation in Los Angeles, you get the feeling that some of those are union dollars, police unions. Understood. Well, your opponent, Fani uh, Williams, is not here. Willis is not here to uh, talk in in uh, response to that. So we won't go further with that. But thank you for answering that question. Um, let's talk about. Uh, let's shift gears for a bit and talk about the community programs uh, and, and the ways in which that you've been helpful to uh, our young men and women in Fulton County. So I'm sure that you've seen a lot of young people uh, come through and I, I'd like to know what you have done during your tenure to make sure that the recidivism is uh, at its lowest and that there are programs that help young people? Well, we, uh, when I started my tenure, that was my main purpose, was to reduce the crime, particularly the violence in Fulton County. Uh, I, I wanted to prevent it from happening, not just to deal with it after it arrived at the DA's office. And we've been really successful in doing that Overall crime rate in Atlanta has dropped 70%, 62%, uh, 70% violent crime rate, 62% the overall crime rate. 
And in Fulton County, six of our municipalities are recognized among the top 50 safest uh, uh, municipalities in the state of Georgia. And what is so great about this is, is that this has happened while our populations have grown tremendously. In Fulton County, populations up 47% since I took office in the city of Atlanta, it's up 26%. One of the ways that we've been able to do that is by developing crime prevention programs. We've concentrated on programs that involved our young people in elementary schools and in middle schools. And uh, so we've got a couple of programs, uh, the, our Legalized Project, uh, our Junior DA's Project. Uh, we're particularly happy about our Junior DA Project uh, because uh, for the first time we had a graduation ceremony in South Fulton. It took place at the New Life Presbyterian Church on Old National Highway. And uh, we had our largest class ever, 135 students, 65% of those students were black males, which we were really, really happy to see. Uh, but we've got some programs and we've got a community court on Fulton Industrial Boulevard. And I'm sure you're familiar with what has been happening with Fulton Industrial Boulevard over the last 15 years or so. We were asked by the business community to come and establish a process to help them rid the community of crime. So what we've done is we've set up a, a community court where the public defender and the DA are working together so that when somebody is arrested in that area, we don't just look at a sentence, we start to look at a treatment process which can kind of restore their lives and to make sure that they don't commit other crimes on the boulevard. And as a result of doing that, we've been able to reduce the crime on Fulton Industrial Boulevard by approximately 75%. We are developing a program in the juvenile court of Fulton County. And I say developing is because we've been really delayed by the pandemic, uh, which we were all surprised by, but it's a program called Level Up. And it's a program that involves juveniles who have been arrested three times. And what we are attempting to do is to supply substantial intervention so that they will not be arrested four times. The reason that's important, if you get arrested four times, data shows there's an 88% chance that you will proceed to an adult uh, charge. And so we're trying to stop that trend. And we believe that once this program is in full bloom, that it's gonna be something modeled all around the country because again, our major partner in this program is the public defender. The DA, public defender are working together. Uh, we've, uh, we're, the three aspects uh, that we're focused upon are aftercare. We're trying to provide a mentor for each one of our kids, but we're also looking at family intervention. And, and that's just the, the, some of the programs that we've put together that we believe that, that they have worked well and they prevented crime in our community. That's wonderful. Now, I want to share something with you. You may not remember this, but you and I met years ago uh, during the, uh, out in the community and you would come out in your van for a national night out and you would make the rounds and 
in different communities. And uh, I do have to say that that was very special that you did that. Um, during that time, Mary Norwood was serving as the uh, district uh, councilwoman at large. And so now I have to ask you this. Um, I understand that uh, she is endorsed district attorney candidate uh, Christian Y. Smith in exchange for a, for a promise to prosecute young, young black men. Now, because we don't have uh, Mary Norwood and the opportunity for her to have a, a platform, I wanna know from you uh, whether you have heard this and what, what you have to say in response to that. Well, Christian uh, Smith uh, was the third person in the DA's race when we ran in the general primary. Um, uh, and really a, a very nice uh, young man. And Christian Smith um, said that once he qualified for the DA's race, that he was approached by Mary Norwood and Mary Norwood said to him that she would endorse him if he promised to uh, incarcerate juveniles. And in his words, he said he told her that it sounded too much like slavery and he refused to do it. Um, now, so some people thought, well, that's, you know, uh, they maybe were a little skeptical about what Christian Smith said. But uh, in the, shortly after that, uh, there's a videotape of uh, Fannie Willis accepting the endorsement of the police union and before she accepted the endorsement, the president of the Atlanta Police Union got up to speak. And what he got up and started talking about was juvenile offenders. He talked about, he objected to the fact that the juvenile offenders were allowed to, to be returned to their parents' homes. And we all know what's the opposite of that. That means you go to jail. Uh, he also started talking about enhanced penalties for juveniles and enhanced enforcement of juvenile laws, which again uh, means put more juveniles in jail. So that same police union endorsed Mary Norwood when she ran for mayor. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the same thing that she, Mary Norwood was talking about that the union was talking about the same thing, and that is jailing juvenile offenders. Uh, Christian Smith uh, also, um, and at this time when the conversation took place, he had several witnesses, uh, and one of them was T.I., Tip Harris. And uh, they, uh, he said that he talked with Fannie Willis, my opponent, about her allegiance to the union and to the Republicans and Mary Norwood and Mr. Harris, T.I., offered to return the money that they had contributed to her. And Mr. Harris told me that she said no, that she would not return the money to Mary Norwood, nor would she return it to the union. So it, it's clear that what um, Christian Y. Smith said, uh, even though some people might have been skeptical about it. I think that it is proven to be absolutely accurate. 
Well, that understandably is is concerning. Talk about, and, and this is shifting gears uh, just, just a bit, but one of the things that's closest to my heart is the the young men that we see who are selling, you know, the beverages on on the corner and as it relates to what they're trying to do, but yet they're also at risk, right? So they could easily fall into that category. So from your perspective and what we what we're discussing now, talk about talk about how your office and what you plan to do um, can help stem that. Right. Well, I am already involved with a program uh, with the chief judge of our magistrate court, uh, Cassandra Kirk, along with the uh, radio and TV personality, uh, Rashad Ritchie. Uh, we are working on a program to take advantage of the entrepreneurial spirit of those young people selling water on the corner. Uh, if you talk to those kids, uh, what you'll find out is they are not thieves, you know, they're not robbers. What they're trying to do is figure out a way to make a living without turning to some criminal conduct. Uh, I, I mean, some of the, the guys are not the most sophisticated. Some of the techniques they use are not the most pleasing, but I, I just don't think that we should somehow make them appear to be criminals simply because maybe the approach that they use is not what we might expect. They are trying to figure out a way to make money for themselves without turning to some bad conduct. And I think it's our responsibility as responsible adults is to figure out a way to channel that thought and that energy without criminalizing what they're doing. Absolutely. Well, while we have you, uh, Paul Howard, we also have uh, Judge Tamika Habrowski Houston, who is joining us as well. And I'd like for her to be able to uh, contribute to that thought, that line of thought. While we get her on for our viewers, we're having a discussion with District Attorney Paul Howard. The runoff election is on Tuesday, August 11th. I am sitting here. If you see the microwave behind me, I'm, I'm here at Mandisha Thomas's uh, residence we are having a get out the vote discussion. We are talking about connecting the dots of government. Our audience, for those of you who are new to our platform, our audience typically consists of those in the video gaming industry, those in the agricultural industry. And so tonight, in addition to our core audience, we are welcoming you to join our discussion in listening to Mandisha Thomas, who was here earlier, and Paul Howard, who now has the floor in talking about what he has done and intends to do uh, in continuation in this role. And we are now inviting Judge Abrosky 
uh, Houston to join us as well. But while we while we wait for her to join the line, Paul Howard, tell tell us about uh, your your time here in Atlanta. Uh, you are you've been a, a part of Atlanta for so many years. So share with us something that we don't know about you. Well, I, I started uh, college here in uh, 1968, and what people might not realize, I was only 15 years old when I started. Uh, school at Morehouse. I turned 16 uh, after uh, in the month of September. We started school in August, I believe. Uh, so um, came up from, uh, as my classmates used to remind me, I didn't just come from the country. They would always say I came from the deep country. Uh, but um, I was able to um, complete Morehouse school at Morehouse. I attended Emory University's Law School. And uh, then I, I really had a changing experience uh, during the summer of 1974. I got a chance to work in the office of Maynard Holbrook Jackson. Um, I, I, I never met a person like uh, Maynard Holbrook Jackson. He, he was talking about politics and improving black life 24 hours a day. And it was Maynard Jackson uh, in 1974 when I was still in law school he started referring to me as Mr. D.A. He would call me Mr. D.A. And I was like, man, why are you calling me Mr. D.A.? And he would start to tell me why you need to be the D.A. And the two things that Maynard Jackson talked about, and I cannot tell you that I understood the context of the conversations then as I understand them now. He talked about two things. And the first thing he talked about was the police brutality. Uh, because at that time, again, the police were killing uh, 15 to 20 young guys. And Maynard said, when you get to be the DA, it's going to change. He, he would say, that's why we need you as the DA, so we can reduce that and change it. Uh, he also talked about, he said, uh, Paul, we, I think at that time, had maybe two black judges in our entire county. And, and, you know, and he would say, that's a shame. But he said the best way for our county to produce judges was that they could get an opportunity to come and work as assistant DAs, and then they could go on to become judges. And, you know, he was right because we've had 43 judges to come from the DA's office, two federal judges. We've had three elected prosecutors. And I'm always amazed that the foresight of Maynard Jackson. He was talking about that in 1974, and, and I say he was exactly right. So let me just mention one other thing, and people ask me this all the time, is what has been probably my greatest experience as the DA? And I would really have to say grilling. And I'm, I don't know what, whether or not you do a lot of grilling, but um, we started a project um, called uh, Operation Fresh Start, where we would seize a drug house, uh, it would be remodeled, we would put a policeman in the house, and then we would sell it to a citizen. And uh, so over in the West End, we seized the house. And the first time that I was introduced to the location, uh, when I got there, uh, I was walking uh, in the neighborhood and saw the neighbors who live right next door to this structure. And when I went in to see them, I noticed that the elderly uh, father who lived at that address, 
he had his grill on the inside of the house. And I asked his wife, I said, why, why is the grill on the inside of the house? And she said, Mr. Howard, that drug property is so bad that he cannot go out on the porch and grill because she says that these the, the drug buyers and dealers were so violent that he was afraid to do it. So we got the court to allow us to seize the house. A lot of volunteers helped us to help us to remodel it. We moved the police officer in and we had an opening ceremony. We had a high school band and hot dogs. But when I got there that day, as I was walking to the front porch, I could smell those ribs. And I looked next door and I saw him and he was just waving and he was so happy. And I should always tell people that probably what the prosecutor ought to be doing is to make sure people can be grilling because that's what he was doing. He was grilling again. All right. That's a that's a really good good story. That and West End is uh, the neighborhood where where I reside. So uh, to know that, that change is, is ongoing, that's that's wonderful. Um, so thank you. Yes. So as we wait for Judge Tamika Habrosky Houston, please share with us as we continue the conversation in connecting the dots of local government. We also um, invited um, Pat Labot, Patrick Pat Labot, to come on as well and. Uh, so at any point, he could join us as well. So talk about the relationship that you have with the sheriff's department. Well, let me tell you, the um, sheriff is very important in our county for several reasons. And the, one of the particular reasons for me is that the sheriff is in charge of court security. And um, when you think about court security in Fulton County, of course, we all think about the Brian Nichols case. Uh, when mm -hmm. we um, lost a judge and a deputy sheriff and some of our one of our court reporters. And so court security is a little different and a little more personal in, in Fulton County uh, than it is and maybe in some other places. Uh, so that's a really, a really important function uh, for the sheriff's department. Mm -hmm. The other thing that goes on in our county is the sheriff is the person who is in charge of the jail. And uh, as you know, we've had a lot of problems uh, with overcrowding at the Fulton County Jail. And one of the problems with the overcrowding is for some reason, but because the inmates are at the jail, the lawsuits are filed against the sheriff. But the sheriff is really not responsible for the overcrowding. He is just keeping the inmates that the court system is sent to him. So the sheriff gets a lot of heat and I believe unnecessary criticism for some of the overcrowding conditions, uh, which the sheriff is really not responsible for. But the sheriff is important. As you can see, like right now in a pandemic, the sheriff is responsible for the safety and health of all of those 23 or so, 100 inmates who are at the Fulton County Jail. And so that is really um, a huge function. Uh, the other thing I don't know whether people are aware of, 
uh, the sheriff is the principal server of warrants in Fulton County. So if we, uh, in the DA's office, if there's a warrant that we're asking that someone be arrested, then the sheriff is required to go out and arrest them. Uh, the other function that's really important in our system is apprehending uh, defendants who have become fugitives, who, who um, don't show up in court or they are arresting for a crime. Um, and, and the sheriff is really key in uh, getting those um, inmates or defendants or fugitives apprehended. So uh, our sheriff plays a really important role. So we, we work together. And one of the things that uh, happens in our county, uh, and I hope that uh, you know as the years go on, that the county will provide additional funding so that the sheriff along with some of the other judicial officials can create more programs to help our community, particularly our young people. And I say that because we have to start thinking about our criminal justice system, not just in terms of you know, the regular process of arrest, go to court and then go to jail, we have to really think about the court system being a way to improve the quality of persons as they come in so that when they leave, they can leave as productive citizens. Well, we want to thank you uh, there uh, for your time, uh, Paul Howard. Thank you so much. We look forward to seeing everyone at the polls on Tuesday for uh, the runoff election. And again, it's so important for everyone to get out the vote and make this election day count. And again, uh, Paul Howard, thank you so much for coming on. Again, this platform is for our video gaming community, our agribusiness community. And by you being on our session this evening, this has allowed our core audience to learn more about how our government works, as well as our new viewers who want to hear from you and the other candidates uh, who we have uh, slated for this evening. So thank you so much for your time. We're going to uh, next get uh, Judge Tamika Habrosky Houston on the line. She was here and it seems as though uh, she's she's dropped. Uh, so let's take a five minute break to uh, get her on the line so that she has an opportunity to talk about her position uh, as we ready for, for Tuesday. But again, thank you, Paul Howard. And if there's anything that you'd like to talk about in the future where you'd like to come back on to our platform, please feel free to do so. All right, thank you. All right, thank you. And to our audience, again, we are going to take a five minute so that we can get Tamika Habrosky-Houston on the line. <laughs> 